0: like
1: Good morning, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and before we take even a small step further, I want to thank everyone who pledged in support of Talking Animals during our Fun Drive show last Wednesday or before. It was a real nail-biter, but thanks to a final flurry of pledges, Talking Animals did reach our fundraising goals, so... I know the station fell a little bit short of its overall goal on Wednesday. So if you didn't have a chance to uh, donate or you'd like to take another opportunity to donate, you can go to WMNF.org and do so. And we'd greatly appreciate it. But again, thanks for all your support in the meantime of, of Talking Animals. As for today's show, my guest is Rob Cheney, a reporter covering science and the environment for the Musolean newspaper, a lifelong resident of Montana, and named a 2020 Neiman Fellow, a top award in journalism. Cheney is also the author of Grizzly in the Driveway, The Return of Bears to a Crowded American West. The book offers both abroad and detailed examination of the grizzly bear with an emphasis on what's happened since the animal was placed under protection of the Endangered Species Act, particularly the bear's numbers having grown dramatically, significantly increasing grizzly-human encounters, which carries important implications. But the story Cheney seeks to tell is far richer than that, exploring the history of the grizzly, long-standing conflicts between the bears and ranchers, regularly angered, of course, by grizzlies killing their livestock, how the animals have long been viewed by tribal nations, how mountain bikes factor into the story... The way the Grizzlies' fierce charisma spawned a steady stream of Facebook posts charting a given bear's location or path, sometimes with the aim of getting a selfie with these charismatic yet deadly predators and a good deal more. So we'll discuss the Grizzlies' intricate saga as presented in this deftly reported book when I speak with Rob Cheney in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Before I address the other guests on today's show, quick programming note, I will not be here next week, but the fabulous Bev Capshaw will be hosting the show in my absence. She always does a wonderful show. Meanwhile, later in this program, I'll speak with Emily Miner, who has become a whiz at fostering kittens for the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League, an outstanding rescue adoption and veterinary facility in West Palm Beach. Miner is specialized in fostering kittens and has developed a real expertise in that realm as well as a crucial defense against the so-called foster fail that would involve her adopting any of these immensely cute baby cats. Right now, though, let's talk Grizzly Bears with Rob with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF. or texting 813-433-0885. This is Rob, or Robert, Cheney on Talking Animals on WM. Good morning, Rob. Morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Happy to be here. Great. So congratulations on the book. I hope, as I maybe indicated in the introduction, I really liked it, and i I'm really impressed by how both deep and wide it goes. It just covers tremendous amount of ground. I learned uh, a lot about grizzlies and related uh, things, and um, I will obviously explore some of that in, in a moment. But at the very end of the book, you mentioned that your grandmother gave you your first book about grizzly bears in 1974. Uh, that's the better part of 47 years ago. So... I can't help but wondering, especially having read your book on grizzlies, how long ago did you start thinking you would write a book yourself about grizzly bears? Uh,
2: the idea of sort of putting it together came in a interagency grizzly bear conference, which
1: is one of the most boring ways you can deal with a charismatic megaphone. <laughs> okay. So what, you were uh, doodling and writing yourself notes and stuff while people were droning yeah, on?
2: We, we took a coffee break. Okay, and the uh, the crowd went out. We were at this hotel, and they went out on the uh, patio. And a group of grizzly handlers, for one of a better term, the biologists, the game wardens, the researchers, all got together and realized that they were all retiring. And this crowd of eight men and women who had all been friends for their entire careers, who all were in the van together with. Uh, Chuck Jongle, who was one of the original grizzly bear researchers back in the seventies. Yeah. And they were all undergrad biology students were all retiring at the same time. Mm-hmm. I realized that the story of grizzly bear recovery is essentially one human generation in length and they were all right there on the patio. And that little lightning bolt was just too much to ignore and, and to realize that the, Arc of an animal survival from fifty thousand grizzlies as an apex predator all over the western continental United States uh, in roughly two hundred years had shrunk down to less than five hundred, wow. and then in one human generation had through humongous efforts recovered back to some place where, arguably, we can say they don't need federal protection
1: anymore. Yeah, well, this makes sense because I was going to mention that along the way, this felt often way more than just a book. I mean, again, it's a really well-done book, as we've noted, and we'll we'll get into more details, like I say, uh, shortly. But at times, it it felt like kind of more of a mission that was maybe propelling you. How does that appraisal strike you?
2: Um, Very much, I I like that. Phrase it backwards. (laughs) Yeah, it's a uh, grizzly bears are fascinating. I I don't think I need to elaborate on that, but why they're fascinating um, is in itself uh, a big complex question. Are you fascinated because you're scared of them? Are you fascinated because they're a creature that's part of your cosmology and your spiritual life? Are you fascinated because uh, you want to personify yourself as a big, powerful um, master of the universe? Um, The stories that we tell about grizzly bears to ourselves tell a lot about ourselves, about how we see our place in the world, and that got me thinking about our our human effort to try to fix a problem that we thought we created and whether or not we actually have the ability or the, uh, the hubris to try to say that we can stand outside of some sort of an earthly terrarium and tinker with it and make it better or, or more uh, to our liking. Or if we are just deluding ourselves uh with the presumption that we're somehow in control.
1: Well, I think already uh, our audience can get a sense of why sort of tried at least to to describe this book as having great depth and great breadth. And there's just so much of it, just even in your response there, I think that kind of signals that. And I was also thinking that as I was reading the book, and certainly by the time I got to the end, it's hard to imagine another top-notch journalist from, say, New York or L.A. or wherever... Writing a book is as deep and textured and rich as this one. This feels like the product of a person who's lived in Montana all his life, as you have, and reported there for most of your career, as you have. Like, you were sort of uniquely equipped to write this book. And that, well, thank you. Yeah, that may also tie into the mission. And by the way, when at, at that coffee break at that dull uh, interagency conference, what year was that? That was just uh, four years ago. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, man, you uh, poured this on and really uh, did some huge research and reporting, although, again, the fact that you're were sort of stuck in the th- thick of things and already done a lot of reporting on a lot of these people and grizzly bear issues. Probably was was a jump, but still, that's a that's a pretty uh, short turnaround time for for this kind of book, especially. So, from my standpoint, one of the themes of the book is the various and in some cases uh, decidedly different ways that people, groups, uh, organizations, experts, and others view grizzly bears. Indeed, you start the book just even in the a couple first couple pages in the in the preface, the first page, I think, even by writing two kinds of grizzlies roam the world. Figuring, again, so far that most people listening haven't yet had a chance to read the book. Can you explain what you mean there by two kinds of grizzlies? The grizzly is a animal. It's a physical
2: being. It's a species that has a habitat and a, a lifestyle
1: Okay, well, certainly a companion piece, uh, absolutely. And really, as you introduce us to some of those factions, it's almost as though people are discussing some kind of, like, uh, really innovative film or painting or novel or something where people often hold decidedly conflicting perspectives and often are quite emotional or charged in their in their perspectives because over over the course of the book we really we meet a lot of people and uh and even i'm sure a lot of the people that were at that conference you mentioned and even at that coffee break as we learn have slightly different views of grizzlies, what should happen now that they have recovered considerably in their very low population number. It seems like a fairly polarizing view just across whatever entity you're talking about. Exactly. What had happened that month as we were trying
2: to decide the title, I got two reports from my uh, sources in what's called the Northern Continental Divide Ecosystem. And that is a gigantic space of territory where we are focusing on grizzly recovery. It goes from Glacier National Park on the Canadian border down the Continental Divide of the Rocky Mountains about to my home in Missoula. And in the town of Browning, which is on the eastern side of Glacier National Park, there was a woman who was a member of the uh, governor's grizzly bear advisory committee. And she testified that she was upset that when a grizzly bear comes into a campground in Glacier Park, the rangers immediately charge in and fire cracker shells and scare the bear off and do what they got to do to keep everybody safe. But if a grizzly shows up in her driveway, it's her problem. And she was upset about this. And she was talking about how Mm -hmm. her friend of hers, her child was crying, and she thought that that drew a grizzly bear into her yard. And she was terrified and and want something to change about this. Now, just 60 miles as the crow flies across the Continental Divide in the town of Condon, Montana, there was another grizzly bear in another driveway. And this bear was a... Uh, becoming a habituated human food raider. It was going around looking for bird feeders and dog food on people's porches and whatnot. And folks in Condon were so thrilled to have a grizzly bear wandering through their yard that they didn't report it to anybody. Uh, They were taking pictures of it and sending them to their friends on Facebook about, oh my God, look at this cool thing in my yard, on my driveway. Until it got to the point that this bear was so habituated to human food, it became a serious menace and game wardens finally had to come in and kill it. Hmm. Um, And those two perspectives, that this bear is a a threat to my existence and and requires society to jump in and deal with it, or this bear is the coolest thing in the world, and it it signifies
1: uh, everything that I think is wonderful about uh, nature, it's the same bear. Yeah. No, it's just, as we've already kind of established here, the the views across again no matter what what you do whether you're just like a resident as in the example you gave or experts or uh we'll get into maybe ranchers and others and um i mean it's just a fundamental thing of like well i'm super scared because that that's a deadly grizzly there and then next door or the next person they ask it's like well yeah maybe but look how cool and i got to see if i can i wonder if there's any way to get a selfie and it's like are you kidding me i mean talking about I mean, the selfie thing has gone a little too far when you're trying to work a grizzly into the uh, into your shot. but exactly. And that's
2: a another thing that has happened literally in this last generation. The grizzly bear was the first significant research target for radio callers. The Craighead brothers, John and Frank Craighead who um, were based right here in Montana, did all of their pioneering research. On Grizzlies in Yellowstone Park. And they were the first ones to hang a radio collar on an animal and then track it that way. And all that radio collar did was beep. And now we've got radio collars that talk to satellites and can track a bear's body temperature when it's nursing cubs or not nursing cubs and generate a plot for how far it can travel under certain temperature conditions. Wow. Uh, That's in one human generation. Yeah on a phone that has more computing power than all of NASA had to send Neil Armstrong to the moon.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, technology is, is racing and, and it's amazing, yeah, they went from a beeping collar to be, uh, being able to to gather all that kind of information from from the updated version of that caller, and just, like you say, one generation. Um, let me let folks know, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Rob Cheney, although on the book, the front of the book, and just to look for it, it's Robert Cheney. He's author of The Grizzly in the Driveway, The Return of Bears to a Crowded American West. If you'd like to ask Rob a question about grizzly bears or offer a comment about them, please call 813 239 three email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885 so rob a core element of the grizzly in the driveway is the animal being placed under protection of the endangered species act and the long-standing implications of that decision so much again we've already sort of touched on a little bit but talk about that action including why an animal typically gets added to that list and a few of the significant things it means for the grizzly story
2: you mentioned earlier the uh, my sort of advantage of growing up in Montana and um, being here all this time. The, the fascinating thing about the Endangered Species Act is it very specifically says that we as a country, as a society, want to fix the things we broke in the natural world. But what it doesn't say is how do we balance the, the challenges and the needs of, of that decision between the people of the whole United States, all of us as citizens, and the people who live right next to a 500-pound predator with claws as long as your fingers. Um, And the Act also says that we need to fix these things, the problems that we created, because of our economic development. And when we are saying, but, you know, if if I have to uh, protect the grizzly bear, that means that I can't uh, camp in my favorite place, or I have to rearrange my logging plans, or extra electric fencing and uh, hire more cowboys to protect my cattle or my sheep, uh, and that costs money. Um, And incidentally, the Endangered Species Act has a recovery rate of uh, about 2%. We've put thousands of species on the list. We've kept almost all of them from going extinct, but in doing so, we have created recovery systems
1: So, again, we return to that sort of uh, two disparate views of, uh, hey, isn't this cool over here? And, oh, my God, this is costing me a fortune over here because of the threat to my livestock or, you know, insert other explanation here. So so just so everyone's clear, uh, a key purpose, I think, of adding an animal to the uh, Endangered Species uh, Act list is to recognize that that animal's population is significantly diminishing or, or greatly at risk. And so it provides those protections so as to allow that animal's population to rebound. Is that, I mean, maybe oversimplifying, yeah. but is that basically the, the gist? That's, that's in a nutshell, yes. Yeah. So what once placed under the protection of the Endangered Species Act, what tends to happen to an animal who, after whatever period of time, gets removed from that uh, protection or delisted? Because that uh, seems like also another through line in your, in your book is discussions about should we, should we not, can we... How does this go? How does this work?
2: That's the whole goal of putting things on the Endangered Species Act is to fix the problem that we created. But when we wrote the law back in 1973, we didn't have a whole bunch of technology that we have now for good and for ill. You mentioned uh, the problem of mountain bikes, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Nobody imagined mountain bikes in 1973, Um, and we didn't really—we just sort of assumed— back then, that these were fixable problems. If we could identify the problem, we could identify a solution. You know, we wanted to go to the moon, so we figured out how to get Neil Armstrong up there. And then we find out that, well, you may not be able to do that. And for example, we tried to uh, delist one portion of grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone area in 2007. And that attempt failed in court because the uh, needs of the bear, the, the literal food needs of the bear, depended in large part on two things. A, uh, the seeds of a pine tree called the white bark pine, which are uh, incredibly nutritious. The, the joke is that you, you measure them in QPUs, which are quarter pounder units, <laughs> a thousand calories, which is how much a quarter pounder with cheese uh, dumps India, and cutthroat trout. And those two things, uh, the white bark pine and the cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Park in the uh, decade before 2007, had both crashed. The tree was nearly wiped out by a fungus and a beetle and forest fires, and the cutthroat trout were nearly wiped out by uh, somebody's introduction of an invasive species called the lake trout, which ate all the cutthroat. And so all of a sudden, these two keystone uh, parts of the grizzly bear's diet weren't available anymore. And the judge said, if you can't show that the bears can replace this food, you haven't recovered the bears. And so that delisting attempt crashed. Mm. And 10 years later, they came back and said, okay, we've studied this. We found that bears are actually eating more uh, uh, gut piles left over from hunters. uh, So they've replaced their calorie needs by another source. And that time the effort failed in court again because they couldn't show that grizzly bears in Yellowstone had any chance of a genetic interchange with other bears in other parts of the ecosystem. Um, and therefore were, you know, at risk of being genetically isolated. So figuring out how to make the clock work, figuring out how to make the solution is not something that we've got a book on the shelf to say, okay, here's the recipe. Um, yeah.
1: Add, stir, bake at 365, and ta-da, you've got a recovered species. Right. Yeah, no, it's super, super intricate, Uh, as, again, as your book does a great job of explaining and sort of guiding us through some of those intricacies. And um, I want to get into some more of that, too. But we have a a caller that's been holding for a bit. Let's get them involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Rod Cheney.
3: Yeah, thanks for a great show, as always, Duncan. Talking Animals, fantastic. Everybody donate to it. Anyway, he didn't pay me to say that. So...
1: (laughs) But now I will, though. Yeah,
3: You guys were just talking about what I think is the biggest issue beyond grizzly bears. It's the human attitude that this planet is our planet. That's our driveway, our land, our habitat, our western United States. And every other creature and every other plant and tree and every river and every mineral, Everything is for us to do what we want. And if we own a private property or if we move to a place that's the habitat of some other species that's been there a lot longer than us, and unlike us, it fits into an ecosystem's niche perfectly and beneficially. Unlike us, we don't fit anywhere perfectly and beneficially. Then we say, oh, it's a hassle. And if somebody says, I think grizzly bears should be allowed to live since they were here first, then somebody says, oh, you're a city dweller. You don't understand how bad it is for us to have to live around these apex predators. Well, you move there, and just like with alligators and mosquitoes and other things, bees, etc., when you're an invasive species called the human species and you go into other species' habitat zones, have some respect and recognize that you are the trespasser and that they, by ethics, have more rights than you, that ought to solve a lot of these conflicts. What do you think about that?
1: All right. Thanks for your call. Uh, Rob, you can respond in any way you care to. Sure. Um, That gets at a real uh,
2: foundation of of what I would love people to take away from this book. I don't have an answer to that, but it's a great question to pose. And, And here's what I mean. The U.S. Forest Service was created a little more than 100 years ago under a very utilitarian philosophy greatest good for the greatest number. This is the land of many uses. And as the overseer of our public lands, of our public resources, um, that was sort of the guiding principle that Guilford Pinchot and and, uh, John Muir and all those folks tried to um, put into action. But there are a lot of other ways of making decisions. There are aesthetic ways. There are spiritual ways. There are uh, mathematical or, or uh, you know, laws of science ways that don't have a relationship to anybody's worldview. And when you bump these into each other, you've got to come up with some way, some translator, some currency exchange that um, somebody with one point of view can negotiate with somebody has another point of view. And here's a classic example we're trying to figure out out here or not the grizzly bear can be a game species after it's removed from the Endangered Species Act, whether it can be a big game hunting trophy. But there are a bunch of Indian tribes out here, Native Americans, who consider the grizzly bear part of their cosmology. So if you have a grizzly bear and on one side is a hunter with a legal state-authorized hunting license, and on the other side is somebody from the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation who considers that bear a part of his spiritual world. And he interferes with the hunter. Is he violating a Montana state law that you cannot interfere with a legal hunting activity? Or is he supporting his First Amendment freedom of religion and defending a uh, a spiritual resource? You know, if you've got an immediate answer to that, I sure think an awful lot of courts and judges would like to talk to you (laughs) and uh, have it explained to them.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the thing that uh, underscores, again, how complicated so many issues are within the whole grisly bear saga and that's just a perfect example because yeah what would prevail there and and how and how would you argue that legally or otherwise especially when you've got native american issues that are super important that may or may not find in the law books but you certainly can't just o- overlook them or ignore them for that reason so uh really complex and it gets into um
2: you know i i've Really enjoyed working on one chapter in here about uh, the bear's representation in Native American culture, and I want to be very careful here to put some disclaimers. I'm a reporter. I'm a city editor. I am not an anthropologist. I'm not a member of anybody's uh, tribe, um, federally recognized Indian tribe, or other you know sort of person who can speak with authority in any way other than what other people have publicly declared about their spiritual beliefs but one of the things that has been pointed up about the grizzly bear in native american stories is the bear is everything every kind of character you could imagine it's you know to to metaphorically compare it it's like the entire greek god path of pantheon the bear is the giver of wisdom it is the leader of the council of of spiritual beings it is the obnoxious drunk. It is the uh, the rude guy at the party. It is the, the outsider who won't come in and join society. It is the bringer of society. It is the holder of the biggest magic. It is the dumbest guy in the crowd. Um, it is the uh, uh, most unusual collection of different attributes, all in this one. Figure in in
1: the system. It's uh, and, and even within the same tribe's story collection, you will see bears having all of these different characteristics. Yeah, and it's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. In, in white society as well. Yeah, it's really eye opening, and, and again, it's just as the that chapter does, but the book at large. Again, as I've noted once or twice already, um, but it, it really presents. I mean, whatever someone's thinks or their impression of grizzlies whether they like hey i just like uh, going on on on, you know seeing a youtube video where they're grabbing salmon or you know whatever they might be or i'm super scared of uh being out on a trail and there's a grizzly i mean there's a zillion things that someone could say or come come to the book their sort of predominant impression about grizzlies and uh they'll not that they'll abandon those things, but they'll certainly widen them out considerably by the time they finished uh, reading, reading this book. There's, as you've noted, just, just again, within the s- spiritual beliefs and overall in the Native American stories, so many identities to a grizzly bear. And again, most of us just don't have occasion to ponder all those. So, uh, that's what's great about a book like this. It's like, wow, pull up a chair. Let me, uh, let me give you some. <laughs> A, a range of things that you've never thought about when you thought about grizzly bears before. Again, they, they make great stories. Yeah, no, clearly. And uh, So again, let me say, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Trust. My guest is uh, Rob or Robert Chaney, a veteran reporter, lifelong resident of Montana, and author of The Grizzly in the Driveway. Uh, we invite you to uh, join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813 813- 239 Four three three zero eight eight five. So similarly, along the way, there are uh, at least to me surprising elements of the grizzly story, and we've, we've mentioned this once or twice. So I think we should kind of come back to it just because I really did find surprising the, the striking importance of mountain bikes to the discussion of yeah. grizzlies and sort of to the broader calculus of what to do about them, uh, so as to minimize grizzly human encounters. So. Why are human, mountain bikes so significant in this uh, discussion? So the Wilderness Act of 1964 has a very
2: crucial clause in it that says that in wilderness, man is a visitor who does not remain, and we are not allowed to bring in mechanized transport. Not just motorized, but mechanized. And what that has generally been interpreted to mean is no wheels. you got to bring it on foot or on hoof, but you can't put it on a cart 1964, nobody had a bike that they really thought would be a great idea to take up a logging road or to ride on some game trail over the Continental Divide. Well, obviously that's changed. And now we have a huge industry of folks who think it is uh, their, their big challenge in life to see how far, how high, how fast they can take their bike into any kind of terrain. And just in the last Five, eight years, we've seen the evolution of e bikes, er, electric motor assisted bicycles. And just, you know, point of reference, I live in Missoula, which is the home base of a thing called the Bike Centennial. For those of your listeners who were around in 1976, when we had the bicentennial, 200th anniversary of the U.S., some folks in Missoula thought it was a really cool idea to create a cross country bicycle. Uh, route and that's grown into an industry called adventure cycling and they encourage people to take long distance bike travel all over the place well now they're having their inaugural initial members from 1976 are going and doing this bike ride again 50 years later with the assistance of an e-bike they can take on the continental divide so these bikes can go anywhere including the places that we thought we had preserved for wild animals like the grizzly that were supposed to be pristine and untouched by technology or mechanization. Now what happens is two things. One, you put people in places where animals are not expecting them, and that upsets the uh, opportunity for animals to feed, because if they see something coming at them, it's either a, a threat or it's possible food. Um, but basically it just interrupts their their basic routine. And second, if you're on a bike, if you're pedaling on a bike, you are not seeing the ground for the tracks on it or the signs that some other animal was there. You're just trying to stay upright and not crash into a tree root. And you're coming at anywhere from 10 to 40 miles an hour. When you're moving at that speed, a predator assumes that you are prey or a predator assumes that you are another attacker. In any case, the outcome is bad. <laughs> And we've had a number of situations where bikers have literally plowed straight into grizzly bears and in one particular occasion that I talk about in the book, uh, got killed. Um, and then we try to figure out, okay, what was at fault here? What could be fixed here? Do we ban the bikes? Well, we have a big industry that is doing things on ultra marathons and uh, adventure bike rides and outfitters taking family groups on bicycles and driving right over the bear poop um, and making a lot of money doing it are we gonna tell them no I'm sorry industry is closed because you're you might drive your bike into a bear yeah well
1: yes no. Yes, the decision changed. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, and as you uh, mentioned, that there is a description uh, of a story of a, uh, a guy on a, a mountain bike and came around a, a turn, really, and there was a grizzly, and it, you know, did not it did not end well. But it, partly because uh, the things you said, I mean, it was coming at the grizzly reacted in whatever way the grizzly did. But also, it seems like secondary things seem to be like the quiet of a mountain bike is such that then you're right on top of the grizzly before anybody knows, bear or person, uh, what kind of disaster that they've just sort of peddled into. And uh, and there's just no time to react uh, by, by that time. There's a pretty good study out
2: that shows that the, the hearing distance to hear a bike is about 50 feet. Coincidentally, that's the same distance that a predator, like a grizzly bear or a mountain lion, uh, perceives prey. So you can't even hear the bike until you're 50 feet away, and then all of a sudden you've crossed that line and you're now in the action zone of a predator, which is going to react with instincts and... and. Uh, Muscle twitches way faster than yours. Yeah. Um, And you're going to close that 50 feet in the blink of an eye and things are going to go sideways. Yeah. For you or for the predator.
3: Right. Um, Did you need to create that situation? Yeah. Again, Um, so many questions. One of the responses in the actual after action report was maybe we should do
2: like all the six-year-olds do with their bikes in the back alley and stick
1: a playing card in the spokes. (laughs) Yeah. Any kind of noise, I guess, to alert uh, the grizzly around the corner, right? But on the other
2: hand, for everybody else walking in the woods, do you, when you're out listening to the bird song and the wind in the trees, do you want to hear somebody going... Right. On their-
1: yeah, that's the thing. There's so many conflicting factions, and again, as we've said throughout the interview, here, so many attendant then conflicting viewpoints and uh, uh i don't know how anyone really sorts those out and says okay well here's yeah the playing card alerting the the bear is is takes precedence over the quiet of the people just you know hiking or camping a little, you know 50 feet away or whatever. So super tricky, super intricate. Uh, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, Rob, but I, I wanted to get to an email and a couple more of my questions as, as time permits. The email says, I hope to visit Montana one day. Just wondering, are there certain cities or areas in Montana that have more grizzlies than others?
2: The two major areas uh, with the biggest concentration of grizzlies are the Northern Continental divide. That's the stretch from Glacier Park down to Missoula. But that's a huge piece of territory. Um, You could just about stick West Virginia in there. The second is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is uh, Yellowstone Park and a sort of equally large uh, bathtub ring around it. Um, If you really want to see a grizzly bear, um, and not put your family at risk. Your probably best bet is to go to Yellowstone um, and get in line with the rest of the tourists. Something like ninety five percent of the visitors in Yellowstone never get more than a uh, hundred feet off of the pavement, which is a really sad statistic. <laughs> wow! But you can. Your chances, if you're going to see a grizzly bear, your
1: chances are are best to see one through a car window in Yellowstone Park. All right. There's your grizzly tip for the day. So I guess we actually kind of haven't reached the end of our time. So I've been speaking with Robert to Cheney, Rob Cheney, and the name of the book is The Grizzly in the Driveway, The Return of Bears to a Crowded American West. Again, available wherever you get your books. And, uh, Rob, thank you so much for making the time. I obviously really enjoyed the book and learned a, a lot, a lot about grizzlies that I just uh, uh just didn't even imagine uh, and, and raised issues that I didn't even imagine were um, part of the Grizzly s- Saga. So I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was just really wonderfully done, and I urge people to check it out when they can. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I would
2: just say that I do not have the answers to these problems, but what if anybody takes anything away from this book is, I hope, the ability to ask better questions.
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of major pressing questions, some that are in direct conflict with each other that are that are riddled throughout the book. So, again, uh, there will be some great questions awaiting people who uh, open the book and start reading. So, Rob, thank you again for joining us on Talking Animals. All right. Get outside, folks. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Emily Miner about fostering kittens a challenging undertaking, including how do you not end up adopting these balls of cuteness? We'll ask that question and more when I speak with Emily Miner in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a favorite piece from a longtime comedy corner favorite. And the latter part of this bit ties into our conversation we just had with Rob Cheney, so that's the part we'll play. This is Brian Regan with a piece called... Gentle Ben, it's actually Flipper and Gentle Ben, but we're mostly gonna hear the Gentle Ben part in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNU. How
3: about that show, Gentle Ben? Do you remember that show? About a big friendly bear. There's a good thing to teach, kids. Hey, bears are friendly. Go up and let them give you a big hug. Put some honey on your face, let them lick it off. Bears love kids with honey on their heads. They love honeyhead kids. Hey, gentle Ben, where's Bobby? <laughs>
4: Bobby.
3: Ben's wearing Bobby's hat. I don't know where
4: he is. he's picking his teeth. I think he scampered off that way.
1: He was scampering. That was Brian Regan. Today's Comedy Corner. With the Gentleman portion of a piece called Flipper and Gentleman. Take it from his album, Simply Entitled Live. Now it's time to speak with Emily Miner was made something of a specialty of fostering kittens for the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League. Top-notch operation in West Palm Beach. And I'd like to find out how she does that while managing to avoid ending up with a slew of permanent feline residents, former fosters at her house. In the spirit of full disclosure, I should note that Emily is a good friend of mine. That said, let's talk kittens. This is Emily Miner on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Emily. Hi,
4: how are you? Good.
1: Thanks for joining me on Talking Animals.
4: My honor.
1: So let's just jump right in because we got kitten talk uh, galore here. So what, what prompted you to start fostering kittens?
4: Um, I actually started um, before the pandemic, and I just felt like I needed uh, more joy in my life. So um, we have a neighbor who has fostered kittens for many, many years. I mean, like, we used to kind of poke fun of her. And um, I talked to her about it, and um, last January, I got on board.
1: That's great. So did you consider more broadly fostering cats of various ages, or was it always the focus going to be, hey, just I'm doing this for kittens?
4: Well, um, you know, I really just thought about the kittens, A, because they're so adorable, and B, um, the older cats sometimes have some medical issues that, you know, I just don't feel like we're... Um, prepared to deal with, but um, a big guy did catch our eye the other day, and we went to look at him uh, in the shelter, and (laughs) it was so funny, because his meow was just so loud, (laughs) like two little kittens, that we thought, okay, well, maybe we'll wait a little longer to see if we're going to take another. We already have one adult cat. Yeah. But the, the kittens. I mean, you get the. You know, I remember when I wanted to get a cat when our daughter was younger, and she was like, "Mom, kittens grow up to be cats." And this is just like the most beautiful, made in paradise relationship because. You get these tiny little kittens. I mean, most of them don't even weigh a pound, and some of them are sick. You know, they have upper respiratory infections and problems with their bellies and all that. And you know, you just, you just, for the most part, you just get to love on them and watch them grow.
1: So, Emily, uh, what age typically are the kittens when they first come to your home?
4: Well, you know, it's hard. I think it's hard for even the doctors to tell sometimes, but I mean, obviously, if they have their eyes open and all that, or if they're getting their teeth, those are indicators that they're a little bit older, but they're probably about four weeks old. You know, they try to um, keep them with their moms so they can nurse for as long as they can, and sometimes you can even... When you foster, you can even take a mommy, a mama into your home so that they can, the little kittens can continue to nerve. But they're usually around four weeks old. And then um, when they're two pounds, um, they get sick at the animal rescue rig and then they go up for adoption.
1: Okay, so it's the weight uh, that's the determining factor, um, not whatever age they, they might be, even if it's yeah. approximate. Yeah. So, what are the biggest challenges? Sounds like sometimes, like you say, that they might have some kind of affliction of some kind that goes right. with. So, is that? Uh, I mean, does that happen periodically, or is that kind of common part of the experience of fostering kittens?
4: No, it's it, it's pretty common. I mean, they um you you generally do have to administer some kind of of med, you know, with a syringe. Yeah, and um they they so the challenges are really please because they're so tiny you know you can't use like um a super duper um flea med on the on the script of their neck like you would an older cat yeah and um and then am i allowed to say poop on
1: i think it's a little too late to stop you and i think we're okay Okay, yeah yeah yeah. thank god you didn't use a different word Yeah. yeah
4: Um, yeah, there's you know, especially if you have multiple kitties in a litter like we just got done fostering four kittens, and that's a lot of litter box action.
1: Yeah, does it so, tend to be three or four at a time, or is it usually like only two or so?
4: Um, it tends to be for us anyway because we've always agreed, and my husband Marty is a big he loves this as much as I do, so I have to include him in the fold here. But um, it we you know we don't mind at all taking multiple. So um, we tend to get, you know, three, four, five kittens at a time. Wow. There are some people who maybe don't have the space or, you know, don't. it It can be overwhelming, especially when they get a little older. Yeah. And they... Run through your house, and it sounds like horses. You know, we <laughs> call them the hooligans when they get to that
1: stage. There's galloping kittens in, uh, across the living yeah, room. Yeah, they
4: gallop. Yeah, they gallop.
1: So you mentioned the uh, the full time resident. What's the view there about this parade of uh, yeah. kittens? Yeah, not so
4: great. Yeah, we have an adult cat that we lost. you lost the streets. i like to remind him. And um, his name is Ray Allen, and he, you know, everybody always posts adorable pictures on the Facebook page of their cat t- cuddling with the little fosters, and it is not like that in our home. They, uh, they will put up with them for about mm, 30 seconds.
1: Yeah, and then the stink uh, eye.
4: Yeah, well, stink eye. Or worse.
1: Yeah. yeah. Stink eye and hissing and, and who knows. Yeah. Hiss. She's a so we're almost out of time here, uh, Emily. But let me ask you: How wishful do you get when when they do reach right. two pounds and their stint with you comes to an end?
4: Well, I mean, I just took two in today, um, and you know, it wasn't as hard because they they we do know someone who is adopting them and they're staying together. But you, you know, you just really do feel like the night before, like oh know I, I don't want them to go. But then I'm telling you, the next little batch is just and they need you just as much, so you just have to bite the bullet
1: and do it. And uh, since I mentioned this a couple times uh, on the air and on Facebook or whatever, I mean, how how tricky, if, if any, at all, has it been to protect against fo- the so called foster fail, where people fostering an animal and the next thing you know they're adopting that animal? Well,
4: because my husband says, um, "Honey, if we keep this technique and we won't have." this much room to foster other things. There you go. There honestly has not been one cat that I, I mean, that I felt absolutely head over heels in love with more than another cat. I mean, just fell in love with all of
1: them. Yeah, yeah, you know? but equally. And, yeah. um,
4: yeah. You really
1: do. That's great. You really do. Well, I think this is really cool that you guys are doing that, and
4: uh, certainly uh, made
1: a lot of kittens uh, happy and uh, all getting adopted out into cool homes. So that's Thank great. You. It's
4: made the pandemic a little, uh, a lot happier.
1: Yeah. Right now. Great, yeah. all right, Emily. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for all your thanks, great work for, for for kittens and for the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League. We should get one more mention of them. Thanks in, so. for all you
4: do. We appreciate you. Oh,
1: that's very nice. Thanks, Emily. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. Again, as a reminder, Bev Capshaw will be here next week with you, as I will not be. Stay tuned for uh, Rob Lori. And radioactivity coming up after the NPR News uh, headlines. And um, then after that, we've got Nola doing Midpoint at noon. 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 degrees of blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scotty, and the All Souls edition of It's the Music, and all kinds of great stuff after that on WMNF Tampa and WMNF.org, streaming online. All right, thanks so much. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. Take care.